Hello and welcome everybody to the 12th edition of Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Uh, this is Margarita Zumo, curator for theory at The How. My name is Maximilian Haas. In this series, we've been discussing climate catastrophe and its origins and conditions in Western modernity, mostly by means of theory, also a bit of aesthetics. And today we don't want to reflect so much on this relation but rather discuss or let those people on stage here discuss how um, the human-environment relation can be um, made and can be shaped practically by means of political um, activism. So we give the stage today to the people um, who dedicate their time to the political making of a better uh, human-environment relation. I'm very happy today that we were successful in assembling different kinds of voices inside uh, the climate movement to talk about their strategies and how they can be interwoven and combined. And uh, we also thought that it would be also better today not to moderate and let the movements themselves uh, moderate. So I will shortly introduce the people who moderate on the stage. And I will start with an absent person, Anne-Marie Botsky, who is in quarantine. She played a decisive role in putting this together and also curating and bringing a lot of her comrades actually on the stage. And she's being replaced by another comrade of hers in Extinction Rebellion, Amelie Meyer, who will also uh, moderate and is also central to the organization of Extinction Rebellion. And the second activist who helped us to put all this together and to make the concept of this is Franziska Heinisch and all the rest. Uh, they will tell you. Thank you very much for coming. We're very happy to have you here. Hello, um, it's great that you're here. Amelie and I will do a quick introduction and then also introduce the great guests we have and the other activists that are on stage uh, to you. But first of all, what is the whole topic, the whole thing we want to talk about today? Um, blah, blah, blah. That's how Greta Thunberg con commented on what was happening at COP26, um, the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. What's clear is... When we talk about reducing CO2 emissions, that doesn't paint the whole picture of how we should address the climate catastrophe. We need fundamental change. We need a just transition in certain sectors of the economy and the economic system as a whole. We need to change power and wealth relations in society. And we, who's that? Politicians and businesses keep repeatedly making promises to reduce CO2 emissions, but they, they are not keeping them. And that's why climate activists and those who are affected by the exploitation of neighbor and labor in the current system are the ones who do their job now. But after years of protests and actions in the climate movement, we face strategic challenges. How to continue fighting for the climate without being fobbed off with lip service? In this context today, we want to discuss the whole scope of different strategies that are on the table. It's lawsuits against climate polluters. It's the methods of organizing around the environmental issue. It's media campaigns. It's civil disobedience. It's militancy. It's um, strikes. 
And it's also transnational networking around the climate movement and between movements. But we don't want to do this alone. We have several people with us here that we want to introduce to you now. Yeah, um, thanks uh, for being here. Nice to be here with you today. Uh, we have with us Esteban Servat. He's a scientist and activist from Argentina. And he came to Germany because of threats and political pressure after fighting against the fracking industry, including many European fossil fuel companies. Then there's Carla, Carla Remsma, sitting next to Esteban. Um, Carla is a climate activist and spokesperson for Fridays for Future. We also have here um, tonight Luise Wagner. She's an activist from Germany with Ende Gelände. She helped organize various climate camps and in the past years um, worked a lot on geoengineering. Then there is Lea Meinklingst. Uh, Lea is a lawyer working in public international law. Uh, she's a founding member of SOS Mediterranee, which has just changed its name to SOS Humanity and uh, joined the Office of Client Earth in last summer. And last but not least, Toni Nauschin. She works for, um, uh, for an NGO fighting the financing of fossil fuels and is here as a climate justice and degrowth activist from uh, Bangladesh. She focuses on centering the concept of climate justice at the core of the climate movement and pushes anti-racist and decolonial perspectives and networks. So tonight, we don't just want to let different tactics, strategies and roles in the movement run against each other, but rather weave them together and connect them. So let us reflect on the different roles we and the groups we are speaking as part of take into these strategies and see how we, as a climate movement, continue. What strategies can we use to win? Who are our main opponents? Who are our ally allies? And what course changes are in motion? Do our previous strategies have to change in 2022? A new government is now in office, but the climate crisis continues unabated. Let's hear from you. What's new in 2022? Will the new coalition in Germany change anything about the movement's strategies? What is central in this upcoming year? Hello also from me. Thank you very much for the very kind introduction. Um, I think to start with the question of the coalition, I think the only thing that is new is, is going to be even more difficult to um, separate the bullshit from the true um, revolutionary or progressive um, proposals that are out there, right? Because now we have the Greens in the government that are saying, yeah, we're going to fight for uh, wind power and stuff. So it's difficult that we or the challenge will be that we don't have the equivalent of the class compromise from after the world, uh, after the Second World War today as like a green compromise. Um, but actually see through the bullshit and see behind the empty promises, um, like Habeck, who's against gas and against fracking, but still now offering the subsidies for the LNG terminal that is being built in Brunsbüttel in the north of Germany because the investors are pulling out. So um, we have these double standards that we have to, to cut through. And to start with something very positive about the, uh, the inventory of the movements, um, I think the, the most important thing is that we start looking at each other and ourselves uh, in a very honest way, right? And I think I have the feeling, <clears throat> and I think a lot of us share this feeling, otherwise we wouldn't be here on the stage, that we are pretty lost. <laughs> we are pretty, we are, we are in a crisis in the, in the proper sense of the term, right? Like there's no, there's no just going forward like we did it before. We are really in a moment, and I don't see us at a, at a cross, at a crossroad. I see us in a roundabout. <laughs> 
you know, like we are we are circling and circling and circling, taking turns and taking turns, and not really knowing what exit to take and how to choose an exit, and even not really knowing um, what exits there are. And I think one reason for that is that here in the global north, uh, our understanding and our discourse around climate change is really, really narrow, and is really just narrowed down to cutting emissions, which opens the door to bullshit solutions like climate, uh, like carbon capture and storage, stuff like that. And it's just about emissions, emissions, emissions. And I think one way to get out of this roundabout, or two things about to get uh, out of this roundabout, is one, to stop just narrowing down the climate crisis to emission reductions and emissions. And also to stop fuck around with our with the, cla the the claims and demands that we have, we have to stop saying things like, "Oh, we need to tell the truth," or "We need to fight for 1.5," or "We need to do a system change, not climate change." And I don't mean attacking the movements. I just want to show, like, this is how abstract climate change and the solutions are here. But really, start having concrete demands because right now we are not really demanding anything, so it's hard to uh, to gain something, right? That's my, my inventory of the moment. Hi. Um, yes, thank you so much um, for the kind invitation to be here tonight. Um, I think from uh, a legal perspective, I think it'll be interesting to see how certain litigation strategies and, and court cases develop in terms of what can we expect from companies, what can we expect from governments, what also do we think is... You know, do we think that there is more that we can push for? I think also, you know, you started the introduction with talking about Greta's reaction to uh, COP26. We obviously have another COP coming up at the end of the year. And I think that sentiment of blah, blah, blah is felt very strongly across a number of, you know, sectors also, especially talking about um, small countries, low emitting countries that, you know, I think that element of global justice is really coming to head this year because I think that there is a general feeling that the high emitting states are really not doing enough and so there's this element of global justice that's coming um, into play and, and this question of you know can we keep on asking for uh, emissions reductions when we're not really trying to also address the, th the threats that you know smaller states are very much already facing in terms of sea level rise, in terms of droughts, in terms of um, other natural disasters. So I'm talking also about kind of the loss and damage aspect of um, you know international environmental law. And so I think um, that you know global justice is going to be something that's really going to be um, an important factor this year. We're seeing a lot of kind of global justice movements um, trying to. Um, bring, bring uh, global justice movements from smaller states into kind of the global north and impacting actors over here. And so I think that this is something that I'm looking forward to this year, um, seeing these global justice movements very much spread, spread across the globe and um, hopefully, you know, bringing, bringing forward some of those um, elements and kind of that, you know, need for action. Yeah, I would also start by thanking the organizers for uh, bringing uh, all of us here together. And I would reflect a bit, um, building from what uh, Louise was saying and kind of agreeing to some parts with what uh, she said, but also trying to show uh, in, in perspective uh, of the situation where in some ways we are in a better place. So at the same time, of course, uh, the fact that there we we have a part of uh, this, the, the the new government, this ample government, it doesn't mean that uh, a lot has um, changed. But on the other hand, I think when I was uh, reading through this uh, the coalition paper, 
And one of the things, like the paper starts by saying that the climate crisis is human-made, and it is one of the things that the uh, that we need to address. And it also, of course, mentions this 1.5 Paris Agreement. I think what it shows, when I was reading this, I was thinking, just imagine having a government who says climate crisis is not real and who was trying to completely not even acknowledging that this is something we need to tackle. Like We could have been in a much worse place. The fact that uh, an, a new government has to also uh, acknowledge this Paris goal it shows that the fact that we kept saying, like the, the movement was saying 1.5, it is being expressed. But then it also means that if we say, we, we push ourselves to be more radical, then we could probably getting more radical things. If the government is already saying 1.5, then we need to go more radical. We cannot just stay there. So then uh, explaining, and at the same time, to also again reflecting that in none of the government positions, there is any any talk about reparation. It doesn't include at all Germany's role as the like fourth largest historical emitter or the, what it means to, to take up that and, and any kind of uh, responsibility in that regard. So in this opportunity, I also want to acknowledge that a lot of the things in terms of uh, the whole discussion around global north-south and climate justice, I think the movement has matured. Uh, it, it's not the way it was two years ago. It's not the way it was one year ago. So I guess for me, I think this year in this way it's new like we should celebrate that we have matured and at the same time take time to then gain power from that and then imagine to be more radical to go beyond but uh, i will stop here following with what tony was just saying and also louise regarding the government i see this as an opportunity uh, nothing to be too proud about because they're full of shit they lie. They are going against all of their commitments already by offering to subsidize the Brunsbüttel LNG terminal that is running out of investors. And this, this, this gas is coming from fracking our homelands and destroying native communities in Argentina, in North America, indigenous communities from the Carrizo Come Crudo people in Texas. They don't care. Uh, but I see it as an, as an opportunity that if we can come together this coalition is more more vulnerable to pressure from us. If Fridays, XR, Ende Gelende, and others could come together with a common agenda and a common demand or set of demands, we could bend their will. We could bend their hand more than we could bend that of other more conservative parties. But on their own, we cannot blindly trust them. Like We cannot blindly trust anyone in politics. It depends on us. So I'm glad that we're coming together here because I agree that there is a need for debate, debating strategies. I've been saying this since two years since I arrived in Germany. I feel a complete lack of strategy, a complete lack of coming together. And we've been working with the different movements to bring them together and bring them together to fight against your companies that are destroying our homelands in the global south today. That's the climate crisis. It's not only 1.5 or your emissions in Germany. The colonial roots of your countries, the imperial powers of Europe, continue to have imperial emissions. You know, if you just focus on the emissions in, the, in Germany, you're disregarding what your multinationals are doing all over the global south, all over the rest of the world, and it needs to be tackled. So that's all for now. Well, I think coming from Fridays for Future, a movement which lives or has demanded a lot from the government, I would really agree with Luisa that the new government poses a really big challenge rather than only an opportunity to a movement which yeah, has basically 
mostly demanded from the government because right now the situation is we have mobilized a lot of people on the streets and now the feeling is wow we've won people are everybody says okay we want 1.5 degree we want climate protection we want climate action the it had the peak during the federal election where all of the democratic parties said yeah we want to stick to the paris agreement and then they had programs which didn't do that but the whole discourse has shifted a lot and now the movement especially a movement like Fridays for Future which relates so much to the the government or governmental institutions really needs to find a new role and an answer to that new government which at the moment mostly legitimizes the narrative of like a green capitalism or mostly worded as like a green growth which offers more new green jobs and basically with that legitimizes all of these false solutions we've talked about, gas, more e-mobility, which in the end maybe has less emissions, but leads to more extractivism and resource destruction, especially in the global south, south and like um, destroying the livelihoods and homes of people there. And But finding an answer to that, to that more progressive government, which in the public discourse and the public opinion gives people the question, why should we pro protest for climate justice anymore? I think is really a challenge a movement like Fridays for Future faces and also other or other actors within the, in the climate movement face right now. And this more leads then to the question, okay, how do we, what is the new opponent we have? Because it's not anymore people saying, okay, we don't want climate protection, we don't want climate action because all the parties say, yeah, we want climate action. But then they say, oh, we can't do it because it's not social enough, it costs our um, economic growth, it's bad for jobs. And that's the, the breaking point where, where we will be used against like other social movements, against social justice. And I think finding an answer to that will be another challenge next to the question, how can we find more international and global solidarity, but also finding a place relating to the question of social justice within Germany, because that will be, I think, one of the fights where people say, yeah, we want climate action, but we cannot do it because it will cost our jobs or it's too expensive. I think when we look back, we can all say that we achieved a lot uh, regarding the climate crisis discussion, and uh, it has been it is talked about um, now everywhere. We already heard that in the beginning, but um, also what Esteban said: the ex exploitation of the ecosystems, especially in the global south, is not in the news, and we don't see it here in Germany. And I think this is a topic we all have to work on in 2022 about the um, ecosystems uh, dying, about hundreds of species dying uh, and going extinct. And um, that for me, and I hope for Extinction Rebellion, is central in the next month and year. Yeah, I, I agree with all of you. Um, I feel like right now, after years of doing protests, doing actions, doing work as a climate movement, there is a lack of strategy. Because some things don't work as they used to work before. Some things didn't work from the beginning, but we just didn't change them. And um, the climate crisis continues to, to intensify. And so I feel like it's a really great opportunity tonight to talk about strategies that will actually help uh, fill this lack, um, that will actually uh, propose new ways that enable us to win. Because we shifted the discourse, we changed the narratives around the climate crisis a lot. Yeah, that's true. But if we bring it down to, okay, did we win in terms of fighting the climate crisis? No, we didn't. Not yet, at least. And so I feel like it's, we really in need of finding strategies that enable us to win against the polluters, against big companies, that enable us to win with 
the workers, to connect with the work of the labor movement um, all over the world, that help to to fight the power of fossil fuel companies, that help to bring down those, those new colonial trade regi regimes. All of that is needed, but we need to find ways to do that because I feel like that's the whole lack of strategy we want to talk about um, today. And um, yeah, we want to talk about about alliances that are needed, about uh, certain sectors that we should focus on, but also about tactics and strategies that will help us. Um, and so, yeah, I give it up to you. Yes, we will come back to the um, strategies and tactics later, but first ask you um, which alliances you think are needed. We've seen alliances in the climate movement before with farmers. Ende Gelände is, is an alliance um, and Fridays for Future has worked with Verdi. You also mentioned the social justice we need. Uh, maybe you want to uh, tell us about your col collaboration with Verdi and your future plans regarding alliances. So the alliance with Verdi was formed in last last summer, mostly, um, where it was about the um, talks about the loan, the the money the people, the bus drivers got um, in several or all over Germany, basically. So Fridays for Future groups joined the strikes of the bus drivers um, in their fight for better working conditions, and I think that was a rather It was a rather rather obvious connection because, yes, the bus drivers and um, public transport is obviously a part of a more climate-friendly or climate-just yeah, transport system. So it wasn't one which is so disruptive as if Fridays for Future would have worked together with workers in the automobile or car industry, which would be much more radical. But it was a really interesting first step to come together with people who would never join a climate strike in itself, but to see, okay, how can we form such an alliance and to actually say, okay, it's not about us against them and climate justice and social justice go hand in hand because that's something which will always, by the people in power, be spilled out together to actually make to actually like get the power from the movement so that they're not as powerful and I think think that is one really important alliance we have to strengthen in the future because that is where a lot of climate action is getting stopped because people in power say yeah we can't do it because it's socially unjust it will cost our jobs and all, it will cost economic growth and I think finding yeah ways to work together to have transformative demands not only okay we want more e-vehicles in the car industry but to actually say okay this industry has to be trans completely be transformed and come together that will be really interesting alliances in the future and at the same time it's also about the question of international alliances what you've already talked a lot about which for fridays for future i think is something we should embrace much much more as we are such an international movement we started in the beginning as an international movement it's inherently in our dna um to fight together with the people who also do school strikes um, in other parts of the world and who are a lot more affected by the climate crisis right now and by extractivist pr projects and come together there as well i think these are the two really interesting alliances for the next years as well as one of the like more movement internal alliances where I think we've seen that in some points we've worked together quite well in the past years, but there have also been moments where I think some actors didn't acknowledge that all the different actors within the movement have different roles and Fridays for Future maybe doesn't or shouldn't do the same things as Endegalenda, for example, because we have different functions within this movement. Um, but to channel the energy into working together in a good way, but also acknowledging that different roles mean different tactics. 
Thank you. Uh, I'd also say that internationally we we have a lot of um, uh, a lot of should have a lot of focus uh, with alliances this year. Um, uh, but I feel that when we have uh, alliances with uh, many movements, like we had in, uh, last autumn with Gerechtigkeit jetzt, there are so many topics that for the outstanders for for the public it's very difficult to see. Um, yeah, what they should focus on or what's the main point. Um, I would say we, we need to get the people to understand that we need a system change and that we need a whole uh, transformation. But I still feel that it's very difficult. Um, yeah. And if I may add to that, I think what we need is a complete paradigm shift Europe needs to be a little less, little less Eurocentric. We built the global coalition, Shale Must Fall. That is a grassroots coalition from more than 20 countries in the global south and north to try to tackle the supply chains of your companies that are causing, on the other side of the world, ecocides by doing things like fracking. Wintersal, for example. Many of you may never have heard of your biggest oil and gas company, in Germany, Wintersal Dea. What does that tell you that most of the climate movement and the public didn't even know about the largest company in the largest economy of the EU? We started the campaign Wintersal Must Fall and have been doing actions against them. And with the Shale Must Fall coalition last summer with Ende Gelände in Germany and extra groups all over the world and even some Fridays groups, we did the biggest action against fracking and gas in world history, tackling the supply chains of these multinationals. I think that's a lot more of what we need because it's not just out of solidarity that you can save the global south as a white savior kind of complex the global south can save you. Because I feel Europe is lost. And Europe is lost looking at itself in the mirror, 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 who is the prettiest? Oh, yes, you are. What a great movement. How many people you have on the streets? All about your own emissions. But in reality, it's a global problem. We arrive to it because we are individualistic, because we are nationalistic. And the only solution to a global problem is a global unity, global coalition and global vision that we don't have yet, but we are trying to build that. Yeah, I think that um, what you're saying about focusing on the supply chain and that we have the same opponents and what roles we can take in fighting them, that's really important because, for example, you were talking about tracking, but also in the automotive industry, we have a lot of restructuring going on in Germany, in Europe, for example, at expense of the employees here, but also the shift to e-mobility increases lithium mining, for example, that then creates damage and increases resource grabbing, resource destruction all over the world. So that means we, have, we might have the same opponents and we can fight them on every single stop in their supply chain and every fucking stop they have to take. Let it be in the harbors, let it be where they take their lithium from, let it be where they exploit people here in the global north and in Germany and then let them leave their jobs because they want to increase their profits. Um, but also then focusing on some sectors and some opponents that we can fight properly, that we can win against, and we can power against them. And I feel like alongside of supply chains, um, the transnational alliances and like working together, finding different roles for the different movements at different places of the world, that's really important there. Maybe to add two things to that, I think we, we also tend to speak 
about like the global south like the all companies are fucking the global south and the problems are all in the global south but one thing that i want to to add to the to the global action that we had last year the global south flexed like they were the ones present on the streets like that's not only the problems out there but the resistance movements that are happening there they are also they don't find attention here in the media but they are there like i think argentina was the country with the most activists in the middle of the winter for them on the streets among all the 20 countries that were part of the actions they were the ones most active on the streets so we have to not forget about that as well that not only the problems are there but the resistance movements are very active there as well and sometimes even more than here right and also more in terms of speaking of radicality also more radical than what we claim here as being radical and i would like to offer also a new way of thinking of radicality as well i think alliances is something really radical in a system that is just individualized and particularized. So I think I would like to offer to, to think of radicality as radical alliances and bringing, bringing the, chain, the supply chain together in, in highlighting the problems, but also highlighting the resistances along that line. What is really important for that, or what I consider as being pretty important for that, is also which movements are considered to be part of the climate movement. Again, coming back to the emission thing and oh, we are fighting climate for climate justice and so on. What about agriculture, for example? What about Via Campesina? What about the, the India, India's farmer strike uh, that, that were taking place? People that are fighting for their land, fighting for their water. Here, they're not considered as, as part of the climate movement, but they are. And that is something that we really need to consider also in, in alliances, like this distinction or this cleavage between climate justice and env environmental justice. Those things belong together, and we need to uh, mirror that also in the alliances that we build transnationally. Mm. Leah, maybe let's get to you for a moment because you work with legal strategies and um, that might slightly differ from what the other movement tactics and strategies look like. So maybe you can explain what exactly is the work that Client Earth, Earth is doing and why is it important? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think some might have wondered what exactly I'm doing here um, or, or, or why why we think that the legal work fits into this conversation. And I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, all of these movements and, and, and different approaches, they don't exist in a vacuum like we all intertwine. And so earlier on today, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues about me joining this panel and he said look one of the things that we believe in is that no litigation without mobilization what does that mean the work that we do as a legal organization would not be happening without political rallies would not be happening without political mobilization without people going out and and asking you know for their rights and so at client earth we're a global legal environmental organization we work in over 50 countries around the world we currently have over 160 um, live cases what we do is we enforce the law we shape the law that means we work on um, creating more stringent environmental protections we also increase access to environmental law for us it is important that science and scientific consensus underpins the law and so We want to make sure that science is always at the core of the things that we work with. And so that also means that we believe that by doing so, we, we inadvertently strengthen the rule of law, strengthen democracy because of this element of holding to account and also strengthening the faith that citizens have in these in these um, institutions, because if it feels like that you have no say in what's going on, then there might be, there's a disconnect between you and those that are meant to represent you. And so more concretely, 
Um, we so we in Germany have been working a lot on fossil fuel infrastructure. That means challenging uh, coal power plants. Last year we were involved in proceedings um, on the Dutton Fear, in which we supported residents who were affected by this coal power plant, um, and challenged. Th- this on the basis of land use and and, and uh, zoning plans. So sometimes the work that we do is not necessarily attached to. It, it, sometimes it's attached to very small details, and I think that's what makes the law such a powerful tool because it means that we can find gaps, we can find mistakes that have been made, and they might seem small, but in the end they can actually lead to delaying certain actions. And I think that's something that legal intervention can bring to the table. Um, as I said, you know, our movements don't exist in a vacuum. They are complementary in many ways. And I think that's been shown in, you know, when we look at uh, what's what's happening in Lützerath um, or also what happened in the Hambacher Forst. You know, it was activists that kind of shed light on what was going on there that got political attention. And, and in the end, it was legal intervention that, you know, assisted in terms of halting parts of the deforestation. And I think it's really important um, to just you know, know that many of us are, or most of us are kind of in the same boat, kind of pulling pulling the same strength. Uh, you were talking about court rulings that were really like largely debated in, in Germany and all over Europe. For example, the court ruling against Shell uh, in the Netherlands and then the, um, um, the court ruling of the Federal Constitutional Court in Germany um, on the climate law in Germany. In parts, that has been declared the great breakthrough of the climate movement uh, in the law. Uh, what is to say about that? Um, I think both of those are great breakthroughs. Um, just, you know, and again, this ties in with what I've been saying. Shell was a claim in, in the Netherlands that was brought by over 17,000 citizens. That is a lot of people coming together and, and finding or becoming together and finding like a common goal, finding a common ground. And so similarly, that kind of happened with the claims in Germany. And so I think with Shell, you know, it's it's important in that it tried to show that these large transnational corporations also owe us obligations and that they can't continue to act as if they weren't these big international players that hold a lot of power that also have to be accountable for a lot of the destruction and pollution that they cause. And so when we talk about the German constitutional case, why I think that is a breakthrough in, in my own opinion is so in, in international law, we talk about this principle of intergovernmental equity. And so I looked up a definition earlier and I found this quote, which I think is really quite beautiful. And these are not my own words. Um, Human community as partnership among all generations. And I think that's what this case really showed that the court recognized that the way that in which past generations as well as future uh, current generations are treating the planet means that the planet will not be sustainable for future generations. And I think that recognition is really, really important because we currently have this disconnect between who holds the political power and who they represent. And so, you know, the, the court's recognition for one showed that many of the claimants who brought this case, you know, are, are young children who don't currently have the right to vote. That means their voices are not being heard in politics, but the court heard their voices. And the court also heard the voices of those generations that aren't even alive yet. And I think that's why this case is so significant, because I think for the first time, there's actually a recognition for rights for a generation that isn't even here yet. And I think that's really, really important, especially when we talk kind of about the terrible future that we might be facing on this planet. 
And so um, I think one, one of the things that was really interesting that actually popped up in my email before I came here was this invitation to an event on talking about kind of youth climate anxiety. And I think that's the spirit that unites a lot of us at the moment. Um, you know, it's and, and I think even more so the generations that aren't able to kind of hold office vote and kind of exist within these structures and it's this dissatisfaction with government responses and the little power that they feel they have in terms of limiting this harm and so I think that's why this uh, decision by the German Constitutional Court is so powerful and just before I finish this action was supported by Deutsche Umwelthilfe and they're now bringing a series of other claims once again mostly by young children some as young as five and six years old and so I think it just shows that the law is actually a tool for those that aren't represented in politics. Thank you. <laughs> When we talk about how all of this ties in with other strategies in the climate movement maybe that's a good part. Tony I saw you taking notes um, and I would love to hear your, your reaction on that but also maybe let's combine this with moving on to okay um, what sectors should we focus on in the beginning we said okay nearly everything needs to change uh, we need fundamental change we need systemic change we need to like break through all of those hierarchies power structures wealth relations power relations in the current system but also it's pretty clear that if we focus on everything at once we won't win so let's talk about okay what are the sectors we need to focus on and how should that look like i think one thing that wasn't uh, did, wasn't mentioned in the discussion and i wanted to highlight was the climate justice movement itself at least in global north is a uh, privileged movement. It's like we are fighting this fight because we can. Like if you go and see most of the the people who are in the movement are not um, stuck somewhere, are not the workers who is working with the minimum wage because the ones who are, they cannot with the, all the struggles in life, they are not even managing time to notice how the climate crisis is going to affect us. And it's the same also when we talked about why in Global North the, the climate crisis is so wide and it's not so diverse. You we would see how the society is because it's so stratified and because of this internalized historical racism, you would see the the BIPOC people are also the one who are struggling more in, in uh, North societies. And so in itself, the climate crisis, because the struggle that we're doing, we have to do on behalf of others. But at the same time, when we are trying to build bridges, I have heard from sometimes social movements that we cannot be fighting your fight because ours are more urgent. Then also at the same time, in Global North, we are not doing the climate fight because, yeah, I'm being displaced or my forest is being cut down. So the activist, the climate activist or the environmental activist in the Global South, they didn't choose to be climate activists. It was their, the fight of their existence. So I guess we know that, but sometimes also it includes when we're thinking about political alliance building. What I also wanted to hear more from you was because this uh, building front with the labor uh, workers and the climate movement, it's such an important front. But at the same time, it's also the front where it's most difficult because it's often easiest to put the, the labor in global north opposed to the people from global south because it's also this dynamics, I guess. That's a difficult area to navigate. And just to um, second what Leah was saying, that I think we often don't realize, but the people power in the street is really the most 
important power and they do they are afraid of us and i know the movement we have this burnout we feel the whole burn it's not easy thing to organizing being on the street and we don't see things changing so it feels like what does it matter but it is true and i also realize it more and more like they are afraid of us they do care and it matters if we are on the street or not so i guess this is something we also probably get more energy from and remember that in the end it it, it is us and we do matter a lot well i think all of us agree according to what tony said and also uh, leah was talking about no litigation without mobilization all of us agree that people on the streets are what can change history and they can change the political agenda they can change the the ambitious how ambitious our demands can be and i'm here also to share with you an initiative that we've been working on with people in the global south for a while now uh, that is going to be public for the first time i just want to put it out there because if we just have to go to each movement to pitch it it's going to take us years but maybe throw it up in the air if people like it we could get something done this could be the lowest hanging fruit of the climate crisis for us you must know that the global south is drowning in debt the global south is drowning in foreign debt to global north controlled institutions like the IMF and the World Bank these institutions are controlled by germany the us the uk and so on and they are a classical tool of colonialism is widely uh, studied and understood that these are used as political tools to um, to circumvent or or to frame the government's capacity of actions and in fact to take more resources from them like is the case in Argentina we have the biggest debt the IMF International Monetary Fund has ever granted to any country in its history we owe nearly 50 billion dollars to them well guess what at the same time your countries have an ecological debt to the global south because the developed countries of the global north have contributed the most to the climate crisis by far and furthermore you continue destroying us with your companies and the extraction of resources to promote your consum- consumerism way of life here in Europe in the global north so there's an ecological debt from the global north to the global south and there's a financial debt from the global south to the global north guess what in recent months there's been in the financial world talk about climate debt swaps the imf the world bank have begun talking about this of course it's greenwashing when it comes from them there's also some good initiatives from some ngos but they don't go far enough they're not very ambitious and often it's about okay we're going to give give you some debt relief in exchange for you to protect the forest but what about giving us debt relief in exchange for leaving the fossil fuels underground. You know, in Ecuador, Korea, more than 10 years ago, he tried to say to the global north, we want to leave the fossil fuels underground. Can you pay for it? They say, fuck you. We're going to keep drilling you and making oil spills in the Amazon. So what I'm trying to say is I've been talking to workers' unions, social movements in the global south, in Argentina and beyond, where we have mass movements. These are mass movements. And like was said before, social movements are not well connected or at all sometimes with the climate movements. Here you have the white climate movements and you have the social movements and labor unions and so on that are fighting more existential urgent struggles for survival what if we could connect the two and make the social movements suddenly more aware of the climate crisis and make the climate movements have a social anchoring on survival struggles so this climate debt swap if we can build a global movement 
And I'm talking all I have faith is, is in the global movement of grassroots. The NGOs, they're doing what they can. Some of them are very corrupt. Some of them are good. But we have to be very careful with them. And they will do what they can. But what we can do is to say, Argentina owes 50 billion to the IMF. We're going to leave Vaca Muerta underground in exchange for the ecological debt you owe us. We're going to swap the debt. So you cancel off the debt of the Global South, they're free from this debt that is usually very illegal, granted to dictators, unconstitutional and so on, and leaving the fossil fuels on the ground, which would grant us in the climate movement the first major victory, and it's something that can be done tomorrow if we achieved it with the stroke of a pen. That's the quickest achievement we can make, and already the, the social movements and worker unions I was talking with from Argentina, they're ready to mobilize. How about you put yourself at the service of the people who are fighting for survival, and we connect social justice and climate justice. So I want to invite everyone to do this, and it will take a lot of time and a lot of effort, but I think we can achieve something, and maybe this year we can make an initial action of international solidarity against the debt and for climate justice. Thank you. Carla and Luis, Fridays for Future and also Ende Gelände are very much known for having fought the use of coal in Germany in, in the last years. Is that the sector that we should still focus on? Is it still energy and then gas, gas maybe now? Or is it, for example, the automotive industry that we were, you were talking about, Carla? What is it? What, we should, what should we focus on? Is there an easy solution or is it more complicated than that? Well, you're just putting the finger in Endergelender's wound right now, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, we're in the middle of the debates of exactly that thing because everybody knows like coal is shit. Uh, the end of coal is near. We kind of achieved like the exit of coal. Uh, which is in the far future, but at least it's there, right? So we are in those in those debates at the uh, at the moment. I think yes, in the energy sector, focusing on gas is very smart because it's the the new sexy theme of politics. Like everybody's talking about gas as being the clean <laughs> transition fuel, uh, which is of course bullshit, right? And the gas market is among the gas, oil and coal markets, the one that has grown the most in the last years, I think by like 65% or something like that. And it's also connecting it to fracking, it's just also the most blatantly um, corrupt and the most blatantly uh, destructive part of it. But I think the the more fruitful way of discussing these things is not which area should we focus on, because of course the planet is burning. The future is burning, the present is burning, the past has been burning forever, so... Of course, everything, all of those things matters. Mobility matters, energy matters, agriculture matters. We need to find ways of connecting these things. Like talking about mobility and fossil fuel industry, those are not two separate things. Those are connected. But I think it's not even just saying, okay, fossil fuel or the system or capitalism or whatever. I think it's about also finding concrete ways of how to connect these things. And I think one thing or maybe maybe two two ways of, of connecting things is one is to look at each of those issues through the prism of extractivism because of three reasons the first one is it makes it less probable that false solutions come through like you said already oh let's let's switch mobility okay e-mobility oh well if you look at well where does the material come from you land to extractivism and it enables you like the lithium mines in portugal or in afghanistan right now also yeah the taliban are sitting on a mon like a huge amount of, of lithium right now so it's also really a political question there like that was the first reason because it makes it more difficult to buy those easy solutions but the second one is also because it enables us to highlight the problems like the immensity of the problems that are 
are that are connected. The colonialism, the ongoing inequalities between global north and south, human rights violations that are going on in the mining sectors, indigenous people, black people, and people of color being evicted from their lands. And, and the third point is extractivism enables you also to uh, mobilize and, and build alliances across these sectors, across the, the subjects and across those lines of destruction, basically. That is the one thing I think extractivism is a very powerful lens on how to look at these things. And the second thing I think that also comes back to what Leo um, has been talking about is the difference if we talk about corporations or corporate power. I think it's very, very important. It's a super smart move to, to, target, to target corporations. But more important is to tackle corporate power because we know that we are fighting a system. But like you also said, it's so difficult to make it visible. Like, what does that mean we're fighting a system? And to fight a system, it also it, it means we have to understand it and we have to make out the backbone of it. And corporations are just the backbone of capitalist economy. And corporate power is also the backbone of what is going wrong in the world. And I think we need to find a balance between being aware of the fact that we are fighting a system but we are fighting a system with names and addresses, basically. And I think there also it comes, I think the legal structure of it all comes into place and is really, really important because it's, it's nice and it's important to go to court against, against all the corporations, but there are just too many to just take them to the courts. So if we find legal structures also, because it's the legal structures that make it so difficult to act against them, corporate impunity is so fucking difficult. The legal status of a corporation is a person. They have the, the freedom of speech rights and so on. No? So it's really difficult to just tackle corporation because of the legal status that they have. And if we go in there and just tackle corporate power at its root, including the legal statuses of corporations, I think that can be really, really powerful. So the combination of extractivism and corporate power, in my opinion, would be a very, very strong narrative and a very strong maybe strategy also to finding ways of fighting against a system. Well, I would agree with lots of what you've said from an like, analysis point of view. But at the same time, I think what we need to do as a movement is to break these really complex things down into something which then can also help shape a public discourse and help shape public opinion and actually tackle these international and post-growth and extractivist struggles at the concrete places and companies. And this is where we come to the question, what you also said, okay, what are these places right now? Because for the past years, we've talked a lot about climate and it was like 1.5 degrees and the Paris Agreement and the climate crisis is real and we have to reduce emissions. But that discourse has been won. So now we, as a movement, I think, and that's where we are all so lost, as we stated in the beginning, is, okay, where do we go now? And I think what also Esteban has said is gas is one really, really important point right now to talk about and to actually find actions against not only gas on, like, an infrastructure point of view, but who are like the people in power or the corporations in power, watches with the legislation, because gas is basically the new coal and it's trying to yeah put itself into a place as like a yeah n nice transition technology and as something green and people say, oh, it's natural gas, that sounds really good. But to dismantle that narrative, I think is one really important thing the movement has to find an answer to. And at the same time, and that's where you also already talked about, is the mobility sector or especially the automotive industry i think another really important point because especially in germany that's the the point where capitalist destruction and culture and society are so deeply interwoven because 
the car industry is just like at the heart of the German culture somewhere and cars are just such an important symbol of this whole culture which is like faster, quicker, heavier, bigger <laughs> status symbols and finding a way of addressing especially car companies who are basically the actors of the export capitalism right now in Germany and who as a result from the whole discourse shift now want to become like more green and have like more e-vehicles which maybe have less emissions but at the same time they push forward the whole extractivism I think addressing them and addressing not only the automotive industry as a whole but directly companies like VW which is just like at the heart of this whole society I think is really another step the movement could take um, to break down this whole really complex narratives of capitalism, extractivism, post-colonialism, where when you drop these words, you probably lost 95% of the society already. But to make clear who are the people in power who profit from destructing the climate, destructing livelihoods, and who actually need to yeah, be held accountable. Um, and I think that's where we need to channel the power of the movements into and to, to break down these really, really complex discourses we have inside the movement to something that also for the public makes clear who are actually our antagonists. Yeah, I feel like this is where the discussion, the strategic discussion actually begins. And we might not answer every question we have tonight. But yeah, why is the connection with the labor movement so important? Because the climate crisis is inevitably a class issue. And I feel like this is something that is not portrayed a lot in the discourse because the category of class, mm, not sexy for most people, but it is relevant and it is important because the the global labor movement and the category of class, if you see it as a, as a like from a global perspective, it's the 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 person that works in production plant in, in the automotive industry in Germany as well as the person that's exploited in the um, lithium mines in um, Chile or in uh, Portugal for example um, so it connects people and it makes it very clear where the distinction in the system the distinction lines go it's like between the few and the many and I feel like in bringing this category and also the fights and struggles coming with that back to life, that's really important. Because where did the labor movement draw its strength from in the, for example, last century? It was infrastructure that was easy to to address, that was easy to, um, to slow down or to actually blockade. And also it was people who worked together, who had some kind of collective identity, but also worked at the same production plants, worked in the same factories, worked in the same mines. And that's what we have today as well. It's just that the infrastructure is more complex, that it's not that condensed anymore, that we don't have a collective identity of a working class over the world, but we can rebuild that in a way. And I feel like the automotive industry, that might sound really big, but in the automotive industry, you can make that really specific because there are certain um, production plants. There are, is a restructuring of um, the whole industry going on because it's under pressure uh, to transition. But right now, it's uh, being transitioned for profit and against the employees and the nature. And um, we could change that by forming alliances there. Um, but in, in order to do this, and I feel this is where the tactics and strategy part comes in, it, we need to go beyond mobilizing. Because 
we, we talked a lot about bringing people to the streets, but also there are people that are working in places that uh, where strikes would actually be really helpful. It's not just climate strikes that like students, uh, which were really important, really like successful. That are not the, that is not the only way people can strike and people can fight. We have struggles uh, in the labor movement there that are linked and rooted in the production sites that are rooted where the extractivism begins along the supply chains but in order to reach the people it's not just a rhetoric thing of like okay yeah we stand together with the workers around the world it's a thing we need to be in contact with people and we need to rebuild this collective identity and this is Uh, I think in order to do that, we need to go beyond mobilizing, and that means organizing. And that means focusing on specific conflicts that we can win, because we need to win stuff. We finally need to begin to win stuff, and then we can, like, yeah, larger the scale uh, on which we do that. But that's the first step. We need to go into concrete conflicts um, make it re really clear what the alliances are and what the opponents are and then fight together and use tactics that, for example, the labor movement can work that we as climate activists don't uh, have not that access to. And strikes, I think, are really helpful. That, that can happen in schools and they can happen in universities and they could also happen in production plants all over Germany and Europe and also along the supply chain. And I feel like this would be re really powerful. This is also a scenario I would uh, hope for and I'm trying to work, on for, uh, tr to work on for 2022. There is a big debate going on right now about tactics and strategies, right, in many climate movements. You have all read about the Green RAF, right? And I have a warning to make as someone from a frontline struggle from the global south. This is exactly what the government wants. It wants you to be violent. It wants you to break stuff. It wants you to, to uh, give them arguments to call you a terrorist. And I'm not saying that sabotage is a bad idea. I would do it myself uh, if, if we have a good strategy. In some cases, we need to sabotage companies and infrastructure. I agree. But we must, it's a really fine line that can really easily uh, go, go wrong for all of us, for the climate movement and so on. Because then it's going to create a, a fracture. It's going to create a radical part that is blowing stuff up, makes a mistake and kills some people, or something serious happens, and then the rest of the climate movement will be forced to blame them or distance themselves, or they will be, okay, you're not going to have solidarity with your comrades. It's inevitable that in a movement so big, this is going to be the biggest movement in human history, the climate movement. You're going to have extremes of the right and the left. But we must be careful. And I think that a lot of, back to the Eurocentricity, you know, a, a famous and brilliant mind from China from a couple thousand years ago, he was a military mind, Sun Tzu. He said, um, strategy without tactics is the slowest path to victory. But tactics without strategy is the fastest path to defeat. So you're going to blow pipelines and stuff, but what's your strategy? What's the global vision? I would say you want to radicalize, try to pitch to the population segments that we haven't reached yet. The ones that are not revolutionary, radicals, progressives. You know, the farmers, the people on the front lines in the global north. You have front lines who are farmers. They are not progressives. And does that exclude them from having a right to live? 
the people in the global south are not progressive. The people in my region coming from, they're all against abortion. They have, they're right-wing, conservative, Catholic, religious people, and don't they have a right to live because your companies are killing them? So instead of expecting everyone to become an activist that we are one percent, 0.1% of the world population, educated in universities from metropolis and so on. Shouldn't we have the step of greatness to put ourselves at the service of the people fighting at the front lines that are actually the ones who will save the planet? I think the, for, the winning formula, the winning ticket is the struggles at the front lines with the support of the activists in the metropolis and the progressive groups putting ourselves at the service of them without expecting that they might come, that they all need to become enlightened like we think we are. We are not. We are full of shit. And a lot of the left is dividing itself all over the time. And this is leading nowhere. Everyone talks about climate um, system change, capitalism, and nobody has a fucking answer or an idea how to get there. When I get there, start bringing down your corporations. Start bringing down the biggest symbols of that capitalist system that you want to destroy. That's how we can build a mass movement from the bottom up and build people power to bring them down and change the system we all want to change so much. Maybe just a, just a quick reply also to that. We need to be very careful about that as well. Maybe touching on this, this juicy topic of the, the, this green RAF thing. What we can see already is happening now and nothing has happened yet, right? But there's, there's already this big outscream on the, in the media, like, oh my God, militarization of the climate movement. And what everything, everybody is not, or no one is talking about is the first section of the actual, of the original sentence. And that is always something that happens when people start talking about militarization is the first sentence was whoever is avoiding uh, actual climate politics enables the um, the construct or the the construction of the green RAF so and now everybody's talking about green RAF green RAF nobody's talking about ineffective and inexistent climate politics so it's just a very easy way of shifting uh, shifting the discourses towards and uh, shifting the discourses away from the actual problems which are non-existing climate politics and so on towards a topic that is not even that is not even out there and it's just a very easy way to to give to give them what they want to hear so we have to be really smart about when we talk about radicalization and 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 uh, civil disobedience plus and all that on all that shit to just do it in a way that is not shifting away the uh, the attention from what really needs to be said yeah i feel like the discussion about sabotage is really a reflection of helplessness um, being confronted with a lack of strategy because it is talking about a tactic that is ha isn't even used right now but it's really popular I feel like in the movement because people search for answers for this okay yeah what can we do how can we do this and I feel like it's pretty obvious that destroying a few like pipeline pipelines will not destroy fossil capitalism so we need to build capacities and have a way and have ideas on how we actually can get there and it starts with like may, maybe smaller wins and it starts with building alliances and then actually building mass movements um, because there is no there is no easy way in getting to to the end of capitalism i feel like this is pretty obvious right now even after a few years of climate action uh, from the movements not the governments and polluters um let's get to a quick final round what are you working on for 2022 or if you imagine yourself in december 2022 and you look back at a positive scenario Uh, of this year in the climate movement, in the environmental movement, uh, what would that look like? And let's let's make that a challenge and say two sentences for everyone. 
Um, maybe Emily, you want, want to begin right now? Uh, for me, a positive scenario would uh, be that the climate movement is more diverse, that we learn uh, more for ourselves and feel empowered. And that has nothing to do with the um, with the um, goals we can reach in the public, but just for ourselves, I think that would already help us to, to become what we need to be a mass movement. In the end of 2022, I would hope that the climate movement um, would be able to speak about social justice and a social ecological transition in a way that people actually believe that there's something behind that um, and that there is a vision of what is that kind of a transition and that we could shift the blame who's actually responsible for the climate crisis from an individual to the actual companies who destroy livelihoods in the global south as well as they exploit people here. Um, and at the same time, we found a way to make clear that this new government is not the kind of green thing it labels itself as, um, but that it's basically just legitimizing false solutions and the idea of green growth as a vision which is not at all a way to, to more climate justice. For me, a positive scenario is something what, like what Carla was saying, putting substance behind the talk, not only talking about social justice, but my dream would be that Fridays, XR, Ende Gelende, and other Global North movements would come together in global actions, powerful global actions, like against the debt, for debt swap for climate, with millions or thousands or thousands of people in the global south working together behind a common goal, a common cause, not one saving the other, but as, as equals fighting together for, for this global fight. I think by end of 22, one thing would be to have it more spread, I guess, to see the movement getting more people, getting more energy, and at the same time, a way to change a lot of the discussion that, like a lot of the radical things gets more common. Um, a lot of the radical demands get more accepted in the public and a lot of the discussion, for example, one example is of course gas. So it's clear that gas is not the way, but at the same time, the demands of reparation gets more mainstream and it's more like it's prominent that, yeah, this needs to happen or kind of these global not responsibilities are more uh, prominent. And then at, at the same time, a bit uh, reflecting on what was being said before that the movement is doing much better in terms of diversity. So we, there will be another BIPOC conference. Um, and on a bit more uh, campaign side, I would really love to see like European Central Bank and a lot of the big institutions saying, yeah, we are cutting finances to the companies that are uh, fueling the climate crisis. So it would be really nice to see one big um, shift in the, this policy change that forces the companies to really cut down uh, the coal, oil and gas. I would love to see more people be involved, more people consider themselves climate activists in whatever capacity they manage. Um, I think that would be great. Um, concretely, what are we working on? Um, which I think you might be excited to hear. We're doing some work on agriculture in Germany. Um, so hopefully there'll be um, some litigation coming up there. We also recently launched a challenge against the UK government for its net zero strategy. So hopefully going to see some positive 
um, developments there. We're also supporting the recognition of um, a fifth crime as an international crime, the crime of ecocides before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which also just has a lot to do with kind of political uh, lobbying and, 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 and creating understanding that the destruction of the planet is a very serious crime. I think by the end of 2022, we will have built a global alliance that will bring corporate power to its knees and just cede the territory to uh, actual solutions uh, to the climate crisis. And that start of the end of corporate power has a date. So I will spare you the question of what can I individually do for this? Uh, get involved, get organized and get involved if you are in Berlin um, on the 4th of February. So you have, there you have your second big announcement for, <laughs> for today. On the 4th of February, it's the start of uh, the Global Coastline Alliance Rebellion. Uh, we are organizing a global movement that is uh, involving, I think we are at 30 or 40, 40 countries now that are or 20, 20 uh, countries and going up, um, organizing against um, or in solidarity with protests that are going on, uh, especially in Argentina right now. Uh, and we're coming together to organize this uh, global rebellion and it will start on the 4th uh, of February. We will also organize something in Berlin. So if we want to get involved, um, let's get in touch, let's get organized and uh, bring the corporate corporations and corporate power to an end. Um, in the end of 2022, we have moved beyond mobilizing, we're organizing, we have um, yeah, brought substance um, to the words and have connected the climate labor movement in a more powerful way. And we have won something. It's, it's really about winning for me, right? <laughs> okay, so thank you so much. Uh, maybe a round of applause for all of our guests. Cheers. Cheers.